glorious songs about God's grace, which is where we're at second week in our series, Grace Wins. Grace Wins. Doesn't matter the circumstance. Grace Wins over your worst failures and your greatest successes. Grace Wins. Grace Wins across every divide when it's present politically, <laughs> Ethnically, familial, grace wins. Grace wins between the divide of our sin and God's forgiveness. Death and life, grace wins. We are a people of grace. Listen to me, I'm going to say this several times during our series. Grace is our footing as Christians. It's where we stand always. Even when you're on Facebook talking politics... Your footing needs to be grace. There should never be anybody that you connect with as a Christian that when you're done connecting with them, you can't point to the grace of Jesus Christ, which you are a minister and messenger of. Do you understand that? Amen. Now, I'm going to give an invitation to those of you that want to confess your sin. No, I'm not going to do that. Of course, of course I'm not. Our world needs grace and we're the messengers of it. So it's important that we embrace it fully as Christians. And so we're taking our time and working through this together. Last week, we began in the book of James. Kind of an odd place to start because it's not one of the more well-known passages of Scripture. And uh, the grace that is mentioned there is the Greek word charis. That's the Greek word for grace. It's the same word that we get the word charity for. From a Christian biblical perspective, it means God's undeserved favor or blessing. And that's why we started in the book of James where he said that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, this grace, to the humble. God gives grace to those who are willing to understand their desperate need for it. And that was the big idea last week. Let's say this together. People who fully understand and deeply experience God's grace are those who understand their desperate need for it. And so we took time to look at how the Word of God exposes that need in all of our lives. And we ended up in the book of Romans and Sort of it's summarized by Romans 3.23 where Paul builds this case and says, So all have sinned and fallen short of honoring God. That's where we all stand. We are on equal footing without grace, even as grace gives us equal footing in Jesus Christ. Because that's what we consider sort of the bad news of the gospel but that makes it the good news. And what we learned last week is that God doesn't expose the sin in our life in order to condemn us. He's not condemning. He's loving us. He's loving us enough to say, you have a, a need in your life. And then to point us to that solution. And that's why Romans 3 goes on and says, All have sinned and fallen short of honoring God, and anyone can be made right by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And so now we begin to build that understanding. We, we understand our universal need for grace because of the sin in our lives that separates us from God. What is it that, how did God act in grace to make that possible? 
And we are going to be, as Louisa read for us this morning, in Ephesians chapter 1. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there with me by whatever scripture you have on hand. If you're going to use the Pew Rack Bible, it's page 287. And I'd like to read it again. And I want you to pay attention to the beautiful flow of ideas in here. And then we're going to look at it together. Beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. All of this to the praise of his glory. What we have just read is a single sentence in the Greek language. Wouldn't work in English. We'd criticize Paul's Diction, you know, is run on sentences. That doesn't work in English. In Greek, it's a literary tool to paint a gorgeous picture. It's a single statement that is a cascading of what God has done, one after the other, to remedy our lostness. And what we see in this statement, first and foremost, is that it's a God who is active. God acts. He's not passive. He acts intentionally. He acts purposefully. And he goes to great lengths to bring about his purposes in restoring our fallenness, re reconciling us to himself. You may not picture God that way. You may think of God as passive, as reactionary, as aloof, as distant. You may think that there has to be some way that we get his attention we invoke his attention by maybe the right incantation. Or, or maybe we trigger his attention and his work in our life by doing enough of something, some great challenge or moral living. No, you can't trigger God's attention. You've already got it. He's active in our lives. We worship a God who chooses to act on our behalf. 
And that's what we see in this passage as we look at it. It's a, it's a doxology. It's a declaration of worship. And we're going to do our best to honor it in the few minutes we have today. This passage really deserves weeks of study. There's so many theological concepts that are here. But our goal today is to see it through the lens of this series, Grace. And so we're going to work through it together. And in order to see it as best as possible, we're going to take several passes at it. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at this doxology through the lens of how God acted. Because when we get to the what, some of these words throw a lot of Christians off. You know, these, these big words, election, predestination, those are scary I hope to make them a little more safe for you today. And in order to do that, we have to understand the way in which God went about doing these things so that we understand the profound nature and why we are, as a result, not to be troubled, but to praise God's glorious grace for what he's done. The first thing we see in verse 4 is that God acted in love. Well, now that's, that's the easy one because that's at the heart of the gospel message. The first verse that many children raised in the faith learn is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then, of course, the gospel is expressed in the New Testament by saying, this is love that Christ died for us. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Love is at the core of God's actions. Let's be clear about that. So however we look at these, these actions that he actually takes, always rooted in love. But for many of us, that's where our idea of what motivates God ends. Everything's about God's love. And so the result becomes more individualistic, more me-centered. I'm the object of God's love. And our expectations of God um, are, are less than divine in that sense. Because God acts on the basis of several other things according to this. The second thing we see is that God acts as it pleases him. That's what we see in verse 5 and, and in verse 11. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his good pleasure. I love the way the New Living Translation does this verse. This is what God wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to do it. <laughs> God didn't begrudgingly bestow grace on you. God didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. And he loved doing it. <laughs> That's a great God worth worshiping. He loved us. He acted in a way that he found pleasure. He acted, listen to this, with all wisdom and understanding. That's verse 8. He with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is important because God acts... Everything he does is out of a perfect understanding of the world and is perfectly wise, which means it's always the right thing to do. God doesn't act according to your wisdom and understanding. 
That's why when you ask God for things, you don't, you stand, uh, I don't know, what, what's the percentage of the chance you stand that God's going to actually do what you're asking him to do? God's not a complaint service for your needs. You know, we, he cares about our needs, but God will always do what is absolutely best and right. He will always act according to his wisdom. And I got to tell you, sometimes the things that you think he ought to do to fix your situation are dumb. You don't think they're dumb. God, and, and I have to tell you, I'm old enough now to look back and say, thank God he didn't do what I asked him to do. Thank God what he did was what he knew he should do. And he let me be a part of it. We can trust God with his decisions because he operates out of full knowledge and perfect wisdom, motivated by love. That's, that's awesome. But it, there's more than that. He not only acted with all wisdom and understanding, he acts always according to his eternal plan. God has a plan that was put in place not at the beginning of all things, but before the beginning of all things, this path this says. Now that's very hard for us because our life is short. We squeeze the whole idea of purpose and meaning into our 70 to 90 years on average that, that we live if we're blessed with health. And to us, it's hard to think that within that, God works for our best, but also is driven always by a plan that he is bringing about and has been bringing about since before he said, let there be light. But that plan is at work always when God acts. And that means when God acts on your behalf in grace, that's good for you. But he's also doing it as part of something so big, so awesome, so eternal that you and I get to be a part of. Now here's the final thing about how God acts. And it's all throughout this passage. I don't know if you saw it. God acted in Christ. That statement or one similar to it actually appears nine times. In fact, everything that we're about to see God did in bringing about grace for us, everything has that caveat in him, in Christ. I want to take just a, a, another two minutes or so and read through the passage again with you. And this time, I want, I'm going to emphasize every time it talks about the importance of Jesus, that God acted in Christ. That's the way I want you to hear it this time. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe put a little circle or underline every time you see this. Not if it's a pew Bible, please. Thank you. <laughs> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Do you see it? When Jesus acted to bring about a solution to our need, to bring grace lavishly into our life, his plan was exclusively his son Jesus Christ. Everything God did to reconcile us to himself, he did it in Jesus Christ. There was no plan B. And there are no exceptions. And it is why Jesus himself said that's why he came into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only one and unique son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then later on in the same gospel, he would remind them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's why that statement is he did it through Christ to the praise of his glory. That's Jesus in that section that we are to give honor in glory. And that's why in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about this mission of Jesus Christ who being in very nature God humbled himself and being found in appearance as a man he became obedient to death even death on the cross. You have this incredible condescension of Jesus Christ and then the exaltation of him uh, because of that God has exalted him highly and given him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. It ends with this phrase. All of that. To the glory of God the Father. God the Father acted. Exclusively through Jesus. To bring about our redemption. And he loves it. When we make much of his son. Because of that. Who is our Savior? Who is our Lord? I believe we made much of him today in worship, didn't we? I believe that brought glory to God the Father as we elevated his Son. God acted in Christ. Let's move into how or what God did. And this is where we get to some of these concepts that are both glorious but tough. And the first thing we see, I'm going to give you, I've organized this cascade of actions of God into five acts. The first is that he chose us. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us. We see the same words used farther on down in terms of God choosing. Now, when we talk about predestination and election for anybody that's been a Christian for a long period of time and has done kind of, you know, theological study, you know that's a cantankerous subject. (laughs) 
I never thought I'd ever use the word cantankerous. It must be an age thing. It, it's a tough subject. It's, it's, the, it's been the, the, the subject of great debate for the church for millenniums. Millennia. There you go, there's the plural. Raging debate as to the balance between God's sovereignty and election in salvation and man's free will. How many people are aware of that debate? How many people would like me to solve it for him today? Yeah, that's not going to happen. The reason why there's tension is because well, there's tension in Scripture. You know, you know when the idea of debating between God's election and free will started? Enlightenment. When we adopted a logical system that can't accept parallel realities. That's a distinctly Western way of thinking. Scripture is written from an Eastern mindset. We may assume our logic system is best from a scientific, you know, intellectual perspective, but that doesn't mean from God's perspective it is. God refuses to play by your rules of logic. God refuses to play often by either or. And there are mysteries in the Bible that God says, well, deal with it. You know, there's no place where God explains the balance. And I think Spurgeon got it right when somebody said to him, Sir, can you please reconcile free will and God's sovereign election? And Spurgeon said, You don't need to reconcile friends. Because that's how God sees it. He's not troubled by that. You see, there are mysteries that make sense, not in our understanding of wisdom, but in God's full, remember how God acts? In full knowledge, full understanding, and in full wisdom. Here's a good example. The Trinity, that's a mystery. We universally accept that the Scripture teaches in the Trinity. But there's no way to explain it. And if you require a human analog or illustration to actually explain it, you're going to fail. There is, no there is no analogy that'll work. It's not an egg. It's not water, ice, and steam. All those fall short. In fact, anytime you try to come up with some object lesson to prove the Trinity, you end up with a heresy. <laughs> you check it out historically. That's true. There is no experience or thing in all of creation that we can use to completely understand the Trinity. But we believe it. Why? Because Scripture teaches it. These, these are those kind of things. Why do we get so hung up on trying to make one fit over the other? We go to Romans 8 where Paul addresses this again and he begins this idea of election by referring to God's foreknowledge. And some of us want to go, ah, that's it. That's it. God chose me because he knew I would choose him. Really? Is that what this is saying? It seems to me God wants credit here. Am I wrong? It's sort of like you show up at your boss and your boss says you're fired and you go, you can't fire me, I quit. It's kind of a racket. When, when scripture talks about God's choosing, the clear idea everywhere you see it is that God gets, stop taking away God's credit for acting on your behalf. 
And accept the fact that the scripture says, whosoever will may come, God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to redemption. And on the other side of it, once we walk into the kingdom of God, it also says, I chose you since before the foundation of the world. Just deal with that. Trust God with it. Don't try to figure it out yourself. You know what? If you were responsible for those choices, you would screw it up. You would not choose people. You would choose. That's not what this is about. This is about God saying, I acted to bring about this. Here's something that may help you. When election and the elect comes up in Scripture, it's not individualistic. It's about a people. The Old Testament. God chooses Abraham. He says, I'm going to make a great people. And still to this day, anybody who has the blood of Abraham is referred to as God's chosen people. By the way, I'm 4% Jewish. I just found this out. Had my DNA tested. I'm chosen twice. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> that was free. You can toss that one out. So here's the point. The point here is that God acted to bring you to himself. That's the point. Let it be a mystery, but don't take away God's credit. He wants glory for that. That's the point of it. Be grateful at some point somebody shared the gospel with you and you said, I want that. I need that. I choose that. And be grateful at the same time God says, yeah, and you know what? I chose you too. Vitalina and I have been married for 39 years. You know what? I chose her. Thank God she chose me. <laughs> See? See how that works? Don't rob God of the credit he's looking for when he says, I chose you. That'll work. Second, he adopted us. Now this passage, this section again can be a little troubling in our modern sensibility. He predestined us for adoption to sonship. Now, we use a version of the NIV. I'm not sure our pew Bibles uh, match that, but uh, we preach from a version and the Bibles that we're providing as gifts are a version of the NIV that where it's appropriate, use gender neutral language where it's clear that the scripture, even though contextually and culturally it was referring to men, re actually meant all people. We find, uh, we find it's helpful to make sure that uh, we, we use inclusive language in terms of that. But this is a place where appropriately the translators say we can't compromise this section. And so they leave it as sonship. You know why? Because that's a theological concept that Paul steals from his culture and makes a mockery of his culture. Because in that day... The son, in fact, the oldest son was the heir. He, he was the inheritor. He was the son. He was the one that got all of the father's blessing and resources. And so Paul robs that from culture. And he says, now, you, all of you, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, you're all sons. See that? He's throwing it in the face of the culture of his day, saying, you all get to be heirs. I love it. It really, really wouldn't fly now because we don't have that reality uh, as much in our culture. But that's exactly what Paul's doing. So what he's saying is God didn't just adopt you into his family. He put you in the highest position 
in his family. He didn't just make you a son. He made you the son who is the heir to all things. All of us. I love how when Paul addresses it, he says that sonship spans gender, spans ethnicity, and spans position, social position. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave free. All of us have been adopted in the family and all of us get all the blessings that come along with that. I can't tell you how radical that was in its day. It's still radical today. We're still not there, are we? As a people even now, but the people of God ought to be because that's what God made possible. He chose us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. This isn't necessarily an order, chronological order, because the redemption was necessary for the adoption. But he redeemed us through the forgiveness of sins in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He didn't just redeem us, then he recruited us in all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us his purposes, his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Bring all of it under Christ. So the beautiful thing is that because we have been brought into God's family, we've been adopted into his family. Now we take on the family business. Now we're a part of this great plan of bringing grace not just to those of us that receive it now, and not just to all who are willing to come as we preach the message, but ultimately to all of creation itself as everything is put under the feet of Christ and he makes all things new. We now have that eternal purpose. He chose us, he adopted us, he redeemed us, he recruited us, and then he secured us. That's what it means when it says, and you also, verse 13, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, worthy of a huge study. That's not what we're doing here. What we are doing is saying that the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is a guaranteed reality in the life of every child of God, every person who believes and receives the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is how we are birthed into the body of Christ. But what Paul is saying is it's more than that. It's a guarantee. That's what a seal is. You know that phrase, he sealed the deal? Any of you know that phrase? Right? That's where this comes from. In other words, he finished it. It's a done deal. It's irrevocable. That's the power of God's grace. It endures in your life right through into eternity. That's, you read it. It's unavoidable. You couldn't do anything to earn God's grace in the first place. You can't do anything to keep it. It's all because of his work. And so not only did he send his son, not only did he choose you, move in, he bring the message to you, not only did he redeem you and then refit you for an eternal purpose, he made sure that that would last forever in your life. That's why I believe believers who have come to faith in Christ are secure, not because you deserve it, but because God guaranteed it. God sealed you in him. 
And without that, grace is a mockery. Grace is a mockery if you don't believe that, in my opinion. If I can say it humbly. That's not humble. I feel so strongly about this because when we take away the idea that we are secure in Christ, then the cross becomes temporary. When we think that we can maintain our salvation through works, then salvation itself can be through works. Do you see my point? That's another big subject. I got two and a half minutes, so we're moving on. God did all of that for you and me. What was our part according to this? What did we do as part of this whole work of God's grace? Here it is. We heard and we believed. So what did we do? Nothing. Nothing. We, received, we became aware of it and we simply received it into our lives. Trusted in it. That's why God alone gets all the glory. Say this phrase with me. We didn't contribute to our restoration. We just received it by faith. We were powerless to do anything else. That's what Paul means in the book of Romans when he says this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the perfect time and died for us sinners. That's a great translation. Died for all of us. Us sinners, you and me alike. Right. Why did God act? He acted out of love, but he acted ultimately that he might be worshipped to the praise of his glorious grace and to the praise of his glory. We get all the blessings. God gets all the credit and all the worship. So you say, okay, that's a lot of good stuff. Was this sermon really about grace? Yeah. This is, the, this is great. It's all grace. That's the point of it. Put it up. This is grace. It's the grace which God has freely given, verse 6 and verse 8, that God lavished on us. What an extravagant word. He lavished his grace on us. The Greek word is parasuo. And it means exceedingly beyond what was expected or required. <laughs> Abundantly more than we needed. I love that thought. God, God, when he reached down to save us, didn't just do the minimum that was necessary. And he didn't just accomplish it well. You and I don't just receive grace. We swim in it. He lavished it. On us with all wisdom and understanding. Powerful story. Many of you my age will remember the song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Anybody here? Both of you? That's good. Um, I'm going to take a little liberty here. I, I, I really press our preaching team to be done in 35 minutes. So the sermon's over, but I've got a bonus now. Thank you. Um, that song was a sort of a pop culture uh, reworking of a, of a story that was written in a newspaper article by Pete Hamill. It's called Going Home. It's a true event. Um, some years ago, a movie was made out of it that starred James Earl Jones. I want to read it for you. 
They were going to Fort Lauderdale. The girl remembered later there were six of them, three boys and three girls. And they picked up the bus at the old terminal on 34th Street, carrying sandwiches and wine in paper bags, dreaming of golden beaches and the tides of the sea as the gray cold spring of New York vanished behind them. A man named Vingo was on board from the beginning. As the bus passed through Jersey and into Philly, they began to notice that Vingo never moved. He sat in front of the young people, his dusty face masking his age, dressed in a plain brown, ill-fitting suit. His fingers were stained from cigarettes, and he chewed the inside of his lip a lot, frozen into some personal cocoon of silence. Somewhere outside of Washington, deep into the night, the bus pulled into Howard Johnson's. That was a hotel chain. <laughs> Way back. <laughs> now the site of uh, Denny's and who knows what else. Chinese restaurants. They pulled into a, um, a Howard Johnson's and everybody got off except Vingo. He sat rooted in his seat and the young people began to wonder about him, trying to imagine his life. Perhaps he was a sea captain, maybe he had run away from his wife. He could be an old soldier going home. And when they went back to the bus, the girl sat beside him and introduced herself. After a while, slowly and painfully, and with great hesitation, Vingo began to tell his story. He had been in jail in New York for the past four years, and now he was going home. Are you married? I don't know. You don't know, she said. Well, when I was in the can, I wrote to my wife. I told her, I said, Martha, I understand if you can't stay married to me. I told her that. I said I was going to be away a long time and that if she couldn't stand it, if the kids kept asking questions, if it hurt her too much, well, she could just forget me. Get a new guy. She's a wonderful woman, really something. And forget about me. I told her she didn't have to write me or nothing, and she didn't. <laughs> not for three and a half years. And you're going home now, not knowing? Yeah, he said shyly. Well, last week when I was sure the parole was coming through, I wrote her. I told her that if she had a new guy, I understood. But if she didn't, if she would take me back, she should let me know. We used to live in this town, Brunswick, just before Jacksonville. And there's this big oak tree just as you come into town. It's a very famous tree. It's huge. I told her that if she'd take me back, she should put a yellow handkerchief on the tree and I'd get off and come home. If she didn't want me, forget it. No handkerchief and I'll go through. Wow, the girl said. Wow. She told the others, and soon all of them were into it, caught up in the approach of Brunswick, looking at the pictures Vingo showed them of his wife and the three children, the woman handsome in a plain way, the children still unformed in the cracked, much-handled snapshot. Now they were 20 miles from Brunswick, and the young people took over window seats on the right side, waiting for the approach of the great oak tree. Vingo stopped looking, tightening his face into the ex-con's mask as if fortifying himself against still another disappointment. Then it was ten miles, and then five, and the bus acquired a dark, hushed mood. 
full of silence, of absence, of lost years, of the woman's plain face, of the sudden letter on the breakfast table, of the wonder of children, or the iron bars of solitude. Then, suddenly, all the young people were up out of their seats, screaming, shouting, crying, doing small dances, shaking clenched fists in triumph and exaltation. <sighs> All except Mingo. Mingo sat there stunned, looking at the oak tree. It was covered with yellow handkerchiefs. Twenty of them, thirty, maybe a hundred. A tree that stood like a banner of welcome, blowing and billowing in the wind, turned into a gorgeous yellow blur by the passing bus. As the young people shouted, the old Khan rose from his seat, holding himself tightly, and made his way to the front of the bus to go home. That's what God did for us. That's what it did for us. One handkerchief would have sufficed. But God covered a tree lavishly with his son. Spread him all over it in love for us. And with arms open wide, he says, come home. Come home. That's God's grace. And it's amazing. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Father, that you chose to act when we were helpless on our own. Whether we understood it, could admit it or not, that in love, at just the right time, Jesus showed your lavishing love for us by being sprawled across the tree at Calvary. In doing so, letting us know that we're welcome. We're welcome home. And then we come, we find grace, we find new life, we find a fresh start. We are rebuilt, recreated into the person you intended from all along for your eternal purposes and glory. Thank you. Father, like Paul, all we can say is this, this is all for your glory. We praise your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.